Hey, I'm Sam. And I'm Lizzie. And we're queer people who love movies. This is Subtextual. It's Treasure Planet. No, it's Treasure Planet. (laughs) (laughs) Me and Lizzie were fighting over, because I think that's said in the trailer, right? He goes, it's Treasure Planet. And I was trying to do the enunciation like perfectly. I'm pretty sure he says it like, it's Treasure Planet. Okay. Well, this we'll, we'll hear it. It's in the trailer. Okay. By the I'll end of today, it. we'll see who's the winner. So why are we talking about Treasure Planet? It must be your birthday. It must be my fucking birthday. We picked a movie that no one has watched in 22 years. No one really likes, and it's not gay at all. Must be Lizzie's birthday. For you, listener, if you haven't listened to the Dirty Dancing episode, that was originally going to be Lizzie's choice for her birthday, but she found out later that it was gay, so we couldn't couldn't use it as her not gay at all. Yeah, because on our birthdays, we get to choose any movie we want to do, regardless on if it's gay or not. In fact, it has to be not gay, which yeah. is actually really hard to choose. It took me like over a month to figure out what episode was going to take the place of Dirty Dancing because mm-hmm. all of my top five rated films are in Letterboxd, with the exception of this one and My Big Fat Greek Wedding are really gay. Yeah, we've done so much coverage on My Big Fat Greek Wedding. You could probably stitch it all together and make one main episode, so... Also, before I start talking y'all's ear off for like an hour about this movie I really like, I'm like recovering from a cough tickle thing, and I have my emotional support cough drops here, so (laughs) if I sound weird, sorry. This is the exact level of delirium I would hope that this episode would induce in you. Absolutely. So yeah, I guess before we blast off to another planet, um, I just want to take a second to recognize and thank our patron supporters. Um, If you've Listen to any of our bonus episodes on Patreon and donate it even a single dollar. We really appreciate you guys. And if you haven't gotten a, ch- a chance to check it out, you can find it at patreon.com slash subtextualpod. We've got bonus episodes. We've got a bunch of really weird perks. And we actually just put in a new order for some hats. Yeah, some new merch over there. Um, so, And if that's not your thing, though, and you don't want to put any money towards us, you are so fine. We're cool with that. Totally cool. We're just glad that you're here for Lizzie's birthday. Happy birthday, Lizzie. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. So, Sam, what did you think? Because we watched Treasure Planet like the other day together and Mm -hmm. you had never seen it before, right? I had seen it. I had no memories of it, Mm -hmm. but I I know that I had seen it because I recognized a few things from it, like mostly Martin Short's character. The crazy robot Ben. Yeah, the crazy robot Ben. Um, And mostly because I had like McDonald's toys, I think. But I had it so fully confused with Atlantis that it wasn't until halfway through the movie and we stopped getting introduced to new characters that I was like, oh, we might not be watching that other movie. Wait, so this isn't Atlantis? Yes, (laughs) that's a realization I had. Yeah, that movie came out a year before. So I think... It gets, like, muddled up with that one and also the Iron Giant a little bit. I think Atlantis and Treasure Planet specifically deal with some of the same themes. Like, isn't Atlantis, like, other worlds sort of, like—and this movie, Treasure Planet, treats the space like the ocean. Yeah, right. It's, like, kind of a mashup of pirates and space. And Atlantis is, like, a mashup of underwater, like, Avatar and El Dorado— the Road to El Dorado. <laughs> I haven't seen that either. <laughs> oh my God, that movie is a classic. 
Oh my God. Are you going to do it next year for your birthday? <laughs> Probably. I watched that one a lot. I watched all the Disney movies and I like Disney so much. I watched all of Disney's competitors films as well. I think it's funny that we had never done a Disney film before and we are starting off 2023 with like three of them in a row. I know. Totally unintentional. Unintentional. Disney's not paying for us to do this at all. In fact, we're never going to do one again. <laughs> I mean, don't say that. It's <laughs> a little hasty. Okay, okay. No promises. So did you enjoy watching it? It was an enjoyable experience as an adult. There wasn't any lulls. Um, the pacing was really good. It was quite funny. There was familiar voice actors that really sold their roles. Yeah, I think it was all around good. I liked it. Lee, are you familiar with Treasure Planet at all? Uh, I don't think I, we were kind of talking about this. I don't think I've seen it because I similarly was thinking of Atlantis, which <laughs> thinking back, I saw that in theaters. So nice. I remember that movie. Treasure Planet may have been something I saw in class or something, you know, like when the substitute teachers like, or they, you know, they roll out the TV. <laughs> um, but I don't think I've seen it. And uh, I'm excited for y'all's conversation. Maybe it'll jog my memory if I do remember seeing parts of it. Oh, we'll go in depth. So I chose Treasure Planet for my birthday episode because I've been watching this movie pretty religiously since it came out in 2002. And I asked Lee the question I've been asking everyone in my life this whole week. Have you ever seen Treasure Planet? And all of them say the exact same thing. Um, is it Atlantis? <laughs> I think I might have seen pictures of it. I think I might have seen a trailer when I was a kid, but I've never actually seen it. And which is crazy because this movie was one I watched all the time, but I might have been like the only kid that really stayed attached to Treasure Planet because the one thing about this movie that really like wigged me out when I found out was that it is the most expensive animated film ever created. What? I, I should say m most expensive hand animated film uh. in the history of the world. There are some CGI movies that have gotten more expensive, but very, very few. It's serious. It would cost a lot of money to make. And because of that, it flopped. This was Disney's biggest money-making loss for any film. Damn. Which to is date? crazy. <laughs> to date, no. There, apparently there's a film out in theaters right now that's going to take a bigger loss, and that is Strange World. I remember. Yeah, I've been hearing people talk about that. It seems really mismarketed. Yeah, there's something off about it. And it's also been recommended to me for us to do on the podcast. Because I think there's a couple of canonically queer characters. I've heard that as well. Uh -huh. And it just figures that when Disney, like, finally gets progressive enough to include some queer characters, the film flops so bad because they don't know what to do with it. Yeah, I'm curious. Like, well, this is a whole nother discussion, but I think we should cover that film because uh, a lot of, like, right-wingers are saying, like, well, Disney tried to get woke and that's what sunk Strange World. And I'm like, I don't know if that is, like, the line we need to draw here. Like, that's not mm -hmm. a causation. I mean, maybe it is because if it's done so poorly that not even people who are queer like it. I don't know. We should see it and judge for ourselves. But to date, until that is like a proven fact, uh, Treasure Planet was the biggest commercial flop in Disney's history. Do you know why it was so expensive or such a high budget? There's a lot of reasons that go into why it was so expensive. One... And I'm going to talk about kind of like the creators of Treasure Planet and the animation style because they took a lot of care with this film. This was like the two directors' passion project. So they were pushing to get this film made for years and years. One of the reasons it's so expensive is because 
Usually a Disney animation film takes about four years to make, but they took five years to do it because there was some new animation technology coming out at the time. It was like their first time working with it, so it just kind of slowed the process down. That and they just used a lot of money to market it. Like like you said, the McDonald's toy collaboration, they didn't do that with every film. Yeah. That was like a select one or two a year maybe. Mm. So they put a lot of money into the merchandising of this film and it like I said, for about four or five different reasons I could come up with, it really just, like, did not perform in the box office how it should have. But that being said, this is one of my favorite Disney movies of all time. Like, I, and I was a huge Disney fan growing up. Mm. You know, like, I had a fucking Cinderella and Lion King themed birthday. And a Bug's <laughs> Life birthday, like. I was about to say, what about your bug birthday? It was just a bug birthday, but it might as well have been a Bug's Life birthday. Yeah, in your heart you knew. So, yeah, I want to talk a little bit about the creators of Treasure Planet. So you said it was two creators, right? It's actually pretty common for director duos to pair together in the, like, Disney creation sphere. Like, most of the Disney movies you can name had two directors, and it's no exception for Treasure Planet. So where Treasure Planet falls in the whole, like, timeline of Disney movies is actually pretty important and pretty interesting, and I think plays into why it failed so hard. But basically, Disney went through this long period of time from 1960 to, like, 1989, 30 years almost, where most of their movies fell completely flat. They were really lazily produced, really lazily written. And Disney was losing so much money on their animated films at that point that they even considered stopping making them completely. And movies in this period, they're not, like, bad. They're just kind of missing what makes Disney movies <laughs> crack to kids now. Like, some examples of movies in that time were, like, 101 Dalmatians, The Jungle Book, Fox and the Hound, The Black Cauldron. Like, there are fans of these movies, but when you compare that to the impact of, like, Lion King mm -hmm. and Frozen and fucking Fighting Nemo, like, mm -hmm. it's a totally different level of creation. And also storytelling. Like, you can't really beat the story of The Lion King. It's classic. Whereas, like, The Great Mouse Detective for some reason, didn't really connect with kids. Also that it was horrifyingly scary. Do you remember how scary that film was? I don't even remember that film at all. A lot of our generation grew up with, like, this new class of Disney movies. It's called the Disney Renaissance. Mm. Were you a Disney kid growing up, Sam? Not too intense, I wouldn't say. Like, my parents, I think from a very early age, started showing me, like, adult films. Not out of, like, <laughs> trying to expose me to anything, but I think out of like convenience yeah <laughs> they just wanted to rent one thing from blockbuster so we we're all watching like sleepless in seattle you know <laughs> um not too much disney movies but i mean it's canon like you can't escape it so are there any that like float to the top of your memory of like ones you might have liked more than others i know i really loved beauty and the beast oh hell yeah because i had a crush on Belle. of course she was yeah. the number one princess in my heart oh yeah and it was it was like a premiere musical where the songs were really well like composed. I loved that movie. Okay, side note, I proposed in the Slack earlier today a future episode on a man named Howard Ashman who actually wrote a lot of songs for Disney, including Beauty and the Beast, who was a gay man. And I think we should have a whole episode on him later because like his tie-ins with Disney and like the tragedy of his life are so poetic in this really tragic way. Yeah. Um, we should learn more about him. But you, a gay man was singing to you Aww, through Beauty and the Beast. That makes so much sense. Yeah, we could do like a character study on on a person, especially if they're 
if their discography is really stacked, that would be a great way to look over someone's life, like where they were when they made certain things. Yeah, and like how their queerness played into those movies and like the success of them. Because one of the one of the trademarks of films in the quote unquote Disney Renaissance, which was basically the whole nineties, was these like big Broadway numbers and like music that was a part of the story. Mm-hmm. Whereas like there's no music in The Great Mouse Detective and The Fox and the Hound that you remember, you know what I mean? Yeah. Whereas like The Little Mermaid. Actually, I would like to show you there was 10 films released in this, like, Disney renaissance. I would like to show you a photo of all the posters, and you can kind of get a sense of what the renaissance was all about. Sure. Okay, Lizzie's showing me a poster that contains A Little Mermaid. I don't know the second one. Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, Lion King, Pocahontas, Hunchback of Notre Dame, Hercules, Mulan, and Tarzan. Ooh, Tarzan. Fuck yeah. Yeah, Tarzan was the last of the renaissance period. And if there was 11th... If there was an 11th film in this lineup, that would be Treasure Planet. Aw, yeah. It doesn't really stack. Hey, what's that second one I couldn't figure out? Oh, the second one is The Rescuers Down Under. Did you ever watch that movie? No. It was kind of like lost to time a little bit, but I used to watch the hell out of that movie. It's about like Australian mice going on an adventure. What can you do wrong with Australian (laughs) mice? So the directors of Treasure Planet's names were Ron Clements and John Musker, And they were one of the only directors to produce multiple films in the Renaissance period. I'm going to show you a photo of the films that they produced in this era. Ah, I see. They produced The Little Mermaid, Aladdin, and Hercules. Yeah, those are probably some of the best Disney films of that time, I would say. They're like still to this day obsessed over by Uh children. Mm -hmm. We have to do an episode on Hercules one day. That movie, I don't know what about it seems gay, But it just really, really does. No, there's a lot to be said about Hercules. Yeah, you can definitely do that in the future. Yeah. And after these films, they also did Treasure Planet, of course. And they did Princess and the Frog, which is the cute New Orleans story. Cute. And Moana, which literally, like, gives me chill bumps every time I think about it. Nice. So they're big players in, like, the hand-drawn arena. So their background was in, like, hand-drawn animation. So they became directors, but they started working at Disney as animators, met, became friends. And, like, right basically when Disney was thinking about tanking its animation division, they pitched the idea of Treasure Planet and The Little Mermaid to Disney. Ended up obviously going with The Little Mermaid, as history shows. And it kind of kicked Disney off to be the number one creators of children's films yet again. But what's interesting about Treasure Planet is that it was one of the first films ever that used digitally made worlds and like set hand-drawn characters within them. Hmm. Basically, they would build the 360 set. Let's say it's like the ship barreling towards a black hole. They would have a 360 of the whole black hole scape and then could just like put the ship and the characters in it. But they could look in any direction around the black hole, Mm. and it would still be like an infinitely colored space. And they can also do these like really cool cinematic shots that mimicked, you know, live action. Yeah. And like Steadicam or Jibs or whatever. But they can mimic that in the computer um, and then just kind of animate the characters to be at the right perspective. That's so cool. Being able to think of the film shooting it as if there was a camera, whereas like other Disney films that are hand-drawn, you kind of have to know what you're going to draw before you draw it. The melding of those two together had like a really dazzling effect. But what was happening at this time is that like Toy Story was the first ever fully CGI film that came out in like 1995. So audiences were seeing these like 
new computer-generated films for the first time, and we're just, like, eating them up. So, like, Shrek, Ice Age, these, like, big successful films were all being released while Treasure Planet was being made. And the jump over from straight hand-drawn films, like The Little Mermaid, to fully CGI films was quicker than anticipated. So, basically, I think Treasure Planet got kind of left in the dust because the wow factor got lost with Treasure Planet. I could see what you mean with the animation, though. Treasure Planet looked like very vibrant and rich, but it it didn't look like void of texture in the foreground, like on our subjects. It looked hand-drawn and familiar, but yeah, it kind of does call for, you know, this is a great time to pull out something like a digital background because it's space. Like you want it to look brighter and massive. So I think that's a good, I mean, it sucks for the creators. You can't anticipate that technology is going to advance in that way, but it, it's really, it makes me sad because it's really quite good. Like one of the things I love most about Treasure Planet, even as a kid, was what you're saying, like the grandness of the sets. And I have a little clip. I just want to show you like the first 30 seconds or so of the film because it really, you really can tell the digital backgrounds are being morphed in with like hand-drawn elements and how well they could like marry them together in that sequence. The great merchant ships with their cargoes of Arcturian solar crystals felt safe and secure. Little did they suspect that they were pursued by pirates. And the most feared of all these pirates was the notorious Captain Nathaniel Flint. All right, so Lizzie just showed me the intro to Treasure Planet, which is so cute. It's the main <laughs> character. What's his name, Jack? Jim Hawkins. Jim Hawkins reading a storybook, and you're you're seeing it from his like perspective, and then he pops into frame, like all hand drawn and adorable. Yeah, but you can totally tell how the like digital world encapsulates like the hand-drawn boy like that's just the perfect example of how they were able to do that yeah it's I mean it's night and day like I can't believe I didn't catch on to it before that it was a mix of both I guess the first time you watch an animated film you're really just focusing on the plot especially with the Disney movie that's like so plot heavy you kind of just bouncing around but you're watching it again it's like the landscapes are so vivid. Yeah. And if you ever go back and watch any other films of the Disney Renaissance period, I think with the exception of The Little Mermaid, a lot of those films use this kind of style and technology. Like The Hunchback definitely did. Like the Sacre Coeur big church scene where he's like scaling the cathedral. Like the cathedral is digital. Mm -hmm. Quasimodo is hand-drawn. And same with Beauty and the Beast in that What's the scene where she's wearing the yellow dress? Tale is old as Yeah, when they're in the ballroom. Yeah, yeah and they're the and you can see the camera movement all yeah, the way around. Exactly. And that yeah. was like iconic yeah. for the time. So like it just sucks that that this technology did so much for the films of the Renaissance. But then as soon as Treasure Planet came out, people were like, oh, we're done with it. We want to see like the doughy creatures of Ice Age instead, which like no harm on Ice Age. I love that movie. But have you seen Happy Feet? Those penguins are dancing. <laughs> have you seen Surf's Up? Those penguins be surfing. Okay, that's my my next birthday movie. Surf's Up. Surf's Up is like arguably one of the funniest movies I've ever seen. It's like Point break for waterfowl? Yes, waterfowl. <laughs> exactly. That's what I was going to say. <laughs> oh, my God. 
Um, so one last fun fact I learned about animation, because I did like a deep dive on animation styles for this. I didn't have to. I have so many pages of notes I just had to delete because they weren't relevant. But one of the things that really stuck with me about like that I didn't know about animation before is that at least at Disney, every like main character is assigned an animator and that person is more responsible for the performance of a character in an animated film than even like the voice actor. Okay, you know they had to give it up for Morph. Because Morph, how do you even begin to understand how to animate like a like a flubber, you yeah. know? That person probably had their work fucking cut out for them. Flubber with a personality. Morph mm-hmm. is my, is a, like a huge part of why I love this movie. So cute. And he just like mimics people. It's the fucking funniest thing I've ever seen. I didn't mean to take you off topic there, but like it, so all of these characters are drawn by different artists. Yeah, so an artist is assigned to a character, and they basically, for four plus years, get to know everything about this character and also choose how they emote. And then they're even in the recording studio oftentimes with whatever voice actor is playing them and directing them on how they should present themselves in the role. I mean, of course, the voice actor and the directors have a say too, but the animator literally shows, like, when this character is mad, what does that look like? Mm -hmm. When this character is hurt, what does that look like? Mm -hmm. You know, and they can affect the performance of the voice actor so much more if they can really, like, nail how the characters emote. And I think one of the things that they do so well in Treasure Planet is each character emotes so much And it also kind of takes on a little bit more, I think, like advanced emotional situations than we see in a usual Disney movie, particularly the Jim Hawkins character and the John Silver character kind of making this father-son thing happen. But these characters feel so much. It's such an emo film. Oh, yeah. But what you're saying about the animator assisting and directing the actual actor makes so much sense because they've probably spent four years animating this like they know probably frame for frame the movements of these characters and you can tell so much about what's happening to someone's body based on their voice like you can even tell if I'm smiling right now when I say this or if I'm frowning when I say this you know so it's so important to have someone there who can just point you just to physicality even especially with the genie like Robin Williams the genie that guy's moving all over the fucking frame I don't think he sits still for like a single second. I would love to see like the behind the scenes on what that was like, because with Robin Williams at the helm for that, like how much is Robin Williams giving you? Mm-hmm. You might have to <laughs> tone know? it down, you know, instead yeah, exactly. of giving me more, probably like, give me a little less. Give me a little less. Which, by the way, that man I mentioned earlier, Howard, he had his hands on Aladdin too. So we we can thank him for a lot. Gay icon. But this is not a gay episode. You're right. Lizzie. Yeah, I know. I'm going to get a whistle or something. (laughs) I can see you trying to go gay with it. No gang in the pool. (laughs) All right, so let's get into the plot. Okay, so before we roll the trailer, let the record show. I think he says, it's Treasure Planet. And you think he says, it's Treasure Planet. Okay. Okay. Planet. Holy shit, I think we were both wrong. <laughs> I know. It's tra- I can't even recreate what he just said. It's Treasure Planet. 
Like you're planning it. Like, like you're planning it. It's <laughs> treasure planet. 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 Your self treasure party. I think our our treasure plan is had a baby. <laughs> I think so. Yeah. A gaby. A gaby. Yeah, and it's treasure planet. Planet. <laughs> okay, but like watching this trailer, it's just like a mad dash of. The most intense elements of the film slapped together with, like, really intense music. There's no character. You don't see Morph at all. You, you see Morph for one frame, and he morphs into Jim or whatever. So it's, like, it's not even what it's Morph looks even, like. <laughs> exactly. And you don't get a sense of any of the characters. No, it seemed like a fan edit. You know, it didn't seem like it was meant to impart on people, like, who's wa- who are watching the previews any real significant understanding as to what's going to happen in this film. Yeah, they just kind of leaned into, like, the epicness of the landscapes, but they did it in such a manic way. I'm like, the pacing of the film is so much more, like, intentional and, like, draws you in more than... This was just kind of, like, gave me a headache, and I wouldn't want to see this movie. It seemed like a war movie or something. This is exactly how Avatar was marketed, so it works for some films and not others, maybe. Yeah. I wonder if, like... They had made a trailer that showed just, like, kind of how funny and heartfelt and interesting the characters are in this film if it would have done better. There's probably some exec that was like, we spent millions and you show the fucking space. (laughs) 100%. (laughs) It definitely feels like that. Yeah. Anyway, if I had seen that trailer as a kid, I probably wouldn't have wanted to see this movie. I want to see the lesbian Jim Hawkins, like, almost cry a lot. Hey, this isn't gay. But it's not gay. No. Okay, this film definitely contributed to my sexuality. Yeah, Jim Hawkins really does look like a lesbian. The rat tail, the, the undercut, the sad eyes and the slope of his shoulders. The baggy pants, what's essentially a skateboard. That's a lesbian. That's a lesbian. Yeah. And Ugh. he has an andro face, like he looks pretty. Yeah. yeah. You're so right. Mm-hmm. He's very androgynous. And he never gets with a girl in the end. He doesn't even look at a girl. It's daddy issues. Oh, Okay. We were talking about this earlier when we were watching it. We had like a mommy issues era all 2022. I think 2023 is for daddy issues. It's daddy issue time, baby. (laughs) I'm trying to think of any other films that are coming to mind as like daddy issue. Um, Casper the Friendly Ghost. Oh, really? Daddy issues? Yeah, Christina Ricci. Her dad is like a mad scientist and Mm. he like is just up in space and she's struggling with that. Ooh, liar, liar, daddy issues. Mm, Big time. Big. Lion King. Look. We're about to do it. We're about to do it. <laughs> Hercules and Aladdin, daddy issues, and both in the Ron and John directing duo. Oh, yeah. you In the trailer, it said one of their names, and you, like, scoffed because it's, it's, they oh. didn't say both of the names. No. In the trailer, it said Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island because I forgot to mention this film is based on the classic novel Treasure Island, which mm. is like a pirate tale about a young boy who gets like swept up in a swashbuckling adventure you love those don't you i do do you see now (laughs) how like this funneled me directly into pirates of the caribbean yeah i think they came out the same year really 2002 uh pirates of the caribbean take came out in 2003 but it was priming me lizzie they marketed all of their pirate propaganda right at you oh man you know one of the rules of disney is that pirate movies don't work Aww. That's why Pirates of the Caribbean like almost didn't get made. Mm. And why Treasure Planet. They had to pitch this movie to Disney three, four, five times. And actually, the only reason they finally greenlit it was because the directing duo brought them 
three of the most profitable films Disney had ever seen, Hmm. Hercules, Aladdin, and The Little Mermaid. And they were going to, like, terminate their contracts and not renew if they didn't let them do Treasure Planet. I think at a certain point, it's not that pirate movies don't work. It's the question is, why are we no good at telling pirate stories? Yeah. Because it's just as fantastical and otherworldly as any other type of story. Maybe you're approaching it the wrong way. I agree. I mean, they did it right with Pirates of the Caribbean. Mm Mm-hmm. And, like, Hook. Hook is apparently gay also. This is not a gay episode, Lizzie. All right. Well, (laughs) you're right. (laughs) On to the hetero plotline. At the top of the movie, we meet Jim Hawkins on his home planet, Montressor. He is a misunderstood, like, surfer, skateboarder, teenage boy who lives and works at a rundown inn with his mother. Um, he does this thing called solar surfing, which is one of my favorite sequences in the film and is like so desperately emo. I was obsessed. It is hot topic level obsessed. Angst. Yeah. Spencer's level angst. Yeah. And apparently James Dean was a visual reference for this character, mm. as well as Shane from the L word. Stop, <laughs> bitch. Okay. Every time you make this gay, I'm like taking points off. Points off of what? I don't know. Uh, I'm taking them off. Okay. Oh, man. I, I don't like negative reinforcement. It works. <laughs> but, yeah, he's voiced by someone that you guessed correctly while we were watching. Yeah, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Yeah. And it didn't really sound like him for the most part. He said one thing, and I was like, hey, is that Joseph Gordon-Levitt? But it's almost hard to hard to catch on the first go-round. And also, in the four-year period that he was recording for the character of Jim— his voice changed, like he mm. went through puberty. So you're probably hearing like a baby Joseph Gordon-Levitt that we didn't see quite as much. Yeah, that makes sense. But he did a great job. So one day, Jim is given a golden spherical map to the legendary treasure planet. And he's given this map by a dying pirate and a warning to beware the cyborg. So his family friend, Dr. Delbert... Um, <laughs> I love him. <laughs> I love Delbert. Convinces Jim's mom to let them go on this expedition to find Treasure Planet. Did the voice of Dr. Delbert, like, tickle your knowledge beans at all? No, not at all. Did you watch Frasier? No. Oh, okay. It's, he's David Hyde Pierce, who is Niles from Frasier, the, like... The dad? The gay, nerdy son. Ah. Uh, uh, the gay, nerdy brother of Frasier. Gay, nerdy brother. No, that didn't tickle my receptors whatsoever. He was, like, the only one I actually hey, knew. Hey, gay... Where's the spray bottle? He's not actually gay. Five I just points think he off. Is. Oh, God. <laughs> no. <laughs> You're good. It almost got past me. Oh, damn it. Fine. <laughs> I'm going to get the... How do I get points back? You have to give me a positive reinforcement as it's well. It's got to be so hetero. I, I can't give you an example, but you'll know it when you... Oh, God. Like, nothing really hetero happens in this movie. Oh, there's a Goo Goo Dolls montage. Okay. Okay. I'll get some points you'll back. You'll get some then. points for that. So, Dr. Delbert and... Jim hire a crew and a vessel to take them on their voyage, and we meet the crew, some of the better characters, including Captain Amelia, played by... Emma Thompson, bitch. This is her hottest role. Hottest role. And she's a cat. Yeah, like a cat captain with, like, actual thigh highs. Oh, yeah. Like, up to the hip. Hip highs. I'm I'm surprised she didn't have one of those little horse whips. (gasps) Oh, she's saying that for that, like... Stone first captain man that obviously was boning her in the captain's quarters. Yeah, they were begging for sure. She's got like jockey realness, super cute. She's got like Dom realness too. That was close. That was almost gay. To a man. Yes. She okay. falls in love with a man uh-huh. and okay. has babies with the man. Do I get points? <sighs> yeah, I'll give you like two points. Yes. 
<laughs> we also meet a little amorphic blob named Morph, who Morph. we're obsessed with. Morph is gender fluid. <laughs> He's literal fluid. <laughs> Space fluid. <laughs> and we also meet the cyborg cook, Mr. John Silver. At first, Jim is like, wait, you're a cyborg and gets hella sketched out, which makes sense in this film, but... They're like in the space world. There's probably tons of cyborgs. I think the only reason he's suspicious is because he gets that warning from the guy who gave him the map that's like, beware the cyborg. No. Yeah, no, I know. Oh. But there are tons of cyborgs. Oh, well, that's why he gives them a chance. Oh, okay. You know, they're like mates within like a montage or two. Yeah, he doesn't put up like a huge struggle. He's like, yeah, there's probably a bunch of cyborgs. This one's my dad. (laughs) (laughs) This cyborg's my dad. Uh I love the John Silver character. I've always loved the John Silver character. And he's like the perfect example of that like digital meets hand animated realness because his arm and leg and eye were created on a computer and they Mm. married him to a hand-drawn body nice and in order to do this there's actually some really funny footage they went into the archives of disney pulled out the like og hand animations of captain hook from peter pan and then like digitized an arm onto captain hook to see if that technology marrying would actually work Mm. obviously it did like that character is so cool looking yeah that's awesome yeah and it also another nerdy thing about this production is that the directors came up with something called the 70 30 law while they were designing basically the rule of thumb was when designing anything in the film from the characters to the costumes to the ships it would be 70 percent traditional pirate lore imagery and 30 percent sci-fi so ah. there was always this kind of like groundedness in like this nostalgic 1800s Pirates of the Caribbean-esque pirate look mm-hmm. with like a little dash of the sci-fi. Yeah, so that they probably would fight the urge to just make them spaceships a la Star Wars. Exactly. They wanted to like do something different than the like cold blue metal smoky sci-fi shit that we were used to seeing with like Star Trek and Star Wars and Atlantis even has a very like metallic feel Mm -hmm. where Treasure Planet is really warm and there's like starlight and sunlight and they also like breathe air Hmm. like no one has to wear a spacesuit in this version of the universe which is not something that like fully clicked with me but I was like yeah whenever you watch a space movie and they're in like huge suits it kind of does disconnect you from where they are, it makes it feel so othered and also more scary. Whereas, like, this outer space isn't really scary. It's kind of nice, actually. That's why so many space movies rely on the inside of a ship. Yeah. Like, you know, Alien, Space Odyssey, just so that you can have those human experiences. But when you do the inverse, like in Gravity, where you put them in a scenario where they have to be in the suit, like you're saying, it really isolates them and yourself as an audience member when you're in the backdrop of what is, like, the most quiet place in the world, like space. And the coldest place on Mm -hmm. Earth. Like, this film is really, to me, like, really cozy and, like, comforting and warm, and that was their intention for it. But yeah, back to John Silver. I th- I kind of have a vague inkling that this type of villain, quote-unquote, wasn't what audiences were used to in a Disney movie and also lent to, like, the disconnect with audiences. Because if you look back at, like, that image I showed you of all the Disney Renaissance films that came before, like... The bad guys were fucking bad guys. There was no, like, morally gray, like, maybe they're okay. Like, Ursula, bad guy. Hades, bad guy. Scar, Jafar, they were all just 
morally black characters. I guess with the exception of the Beast, but the intention of the story is that he does start off bad and becomes good, but he is not the villain. Oh, right, because Gaston is the villain in that one. Mm -hmm. And he's pretty, like, bad. He's pretty bad. He does not change. (laughs) (laughs) So this, like, kind of goofy, pitbull softy looking cyborg i think just like didn't fit into the typical disney scenario mm-hmm. and so i don't i don't really see people ever talk about this character and i'm like he's such an interesting antagonist because he in the end becomes like a father figure i think it was very sweet i it's not something i'd seen a bunch in children's movies as you're saying so I was kind of at the edge of my seat having watched it as like an adult for the first time and not remembering where the movie was going. It was really pleasant. And you got another one of those scenes that you love, a la Grease, a la High School Musical, Mm -hmm. where he goes, Jim, I don't care about Jim. I'm a big bad guy. He's not my son. (laughs) And then Jim is in a barrel watching him like, Dad. Like, Dad, why? (laughs) No, heartbreaking. It's so heartbreaking. So, like I said, Jim... And Mr. Silver end up working together on the ship, and they kind of form this father-son relationship that we see happen through a montage to a Goo Goo Dolls song. And I just want to show you a little bit of that clip because it brings me a lot of joy and gives me a lot of feelings and also shows us some of Jim's daddy issues. And it's hella straight, which gives Lizzie points. Points! Yes! Kind of describe that scene because it's a basically a music video. I was gonna say this is a Goo Goo Dolls music video, but it's so <laughs> sweet. I just got chills watching it back. But you see, baby Jim flash between present day working on the ship and creating a bond with John Silver. And then as he's building this bond, he has moments of insecurity because of abandonment issues, and he's flashing back to memories of his father leaving him. And every time he feels insecure, John Silver basically just says, come on, sport, jump in the spaceship and we'll fly away. And it's so cute. Dude, the like emotional impact of this movie is so, it feels like a more realistic conflict than a lot of Disney movies. I mean, Mulan, you know, not being accepted by your family. Hercules too, to an extent. Tarzan had a real human impact as well, I would say. Oh, right. Come stop your crying. Oh my God, kill me. That will make anyone cry. Oh my God, Phil Collins. (laughs) I think, yeah, that's a credit to Phil Collins as well. (laughs) But like, this was about like a man leaving his family, like like a split family. That's, how relatable was that? In the 90s, 2000s, when we were growing up, like every freaking kid in my elementary school had parents who were split up. To baby Lizzie. Okay, my abandonment issues are just going, ah! <laughs> And the goo goo dolls are just making it worse. I know, but they don't hint at this at all in the trailer. And it, like, I don't know, I totally related to it. And there's one fucking scene in particular that literally gets me every time. I want to show this to you as well. Let's see it. So in a moment where Jim feels he has messed up um, by not doing his job during like a black hole scenario and someone ends up getting tossed overboard, he thinks it's his fault. It's not. John Silver gives him a little speech. No, you listen to me, James Hawkins. You got the makings of greatness in you, but you got to take the helm and charge your own course. Stick to it. No matter the squalls. 
And when the time comes, you get the chance to really test the cut of your sails and show what you're made of. Well, I hope I'm there, catching some of the light coming off you that day. <laughs> you got the makings of greatness in you. Lizzie's Scottish accent went out the window when we watched this movie. It's totally fucked now. <laughs> I mean, here's the thing about this character. He has he doesn't owe this kid anything. He's actually on this ship to screw him over. I mean, in the next scene, it's the scenario that Sam pointed out earlier where Jim overhears John Silver saying that they're going to mutiny and take over the ship and go to Treasure Island and take all the treasure for themselves. And he's totally betrayed, which is the plan from the beginning. He's here to, like, screw this kid over. But he just gives them this, like, really inspirational speech about forging forward, letting your mistakes go, and also saying, like, I hope I'm there to see you succeed. Like, that's a really special message, and it's a really emotional moment, and how they animate the characters in this moment is amazing. Like, it's really nuanced. I don't know. I'm really affected by this scene every time I watched it. Every time I watch it, and I've been watching it for, like, over a decade Two decades. Holy shit, I'm old. Um, yeah, this is such a nice moment. And John Silver says the perfect thing. It's what every kid wants to hear their parents say, you know? <laughs> and he just delivers it so efficiently. And Jim, like, puts his head on John's stomach. Oh, it's so sweet. No, It's like, damn it. We all just want to be hugged by our fucking parents. <laughs> Told it's okay when you Daddy accidentally issues. kill someone. Daddy issue era, baby. <laughs> Bring them out. All right. So John Silver decides to go through this mutiny, steal the treasure for himself. And Captain Amelia, Jim, and Delbert barely managed to make it off the ship. And onto the deserted planet below, where they meet a mindless robot named Ben. Yeah. Played by Martin Short. This character is so loud. So loud. It's the equivalent of Jar Jar Binks. Exactly. But I think a little bit funnier and well-written than Jar Jar Binks. Yeah. Uh, Yes. (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't take much effort, but yeah. Yeah, At least he's not like a problematic character. Yeah. But yeah, last final scenes of the film... So Jim is eventually captured by Silver and his band of stupid pirate lackeys, and he figures out that the treasure is located in the core of the planet. And when they make it into the core and they're surrounded by jewels and rubies and coins, their presence triggers the planet to blow. So Silver is forced to choose between escaping with a ship full of treasure or saving Jim's life. Obviously, he chooses the boy. Because it would be so fucking dark if you didn't. (laughs) (laughs) A way different lesson learned at the end of this film, if so. But they escape back to Jim's home planet, each with a pocket full of coins, and Silver sails off into the sunset. Aw. Bye, Dad. (laughs) See you later, Dad. You know he's coming back for, like, Halloween and Christmas. Okay, well, he was going to come back because there was a sequel already in production whenever they released this film. Oh, but it flopped so hard. When the box office, yeah, just, like, didn't show up, they literally canceled it. In fact, how they—the first person to figure out that it was canceled, other than the creators, of course, was Willem Dafoe because he was slated to play the villain, and he was, like, literally about to drive to Disney Studios to record. And they called him and were like, oh, yeah, it's canceled. Sorry. (laughs) Oh, the amount of preparation <laughs> Willem Dafoe probably did. So much. He just okay, funneled yeah. that into the, the Green Goblin. I'm really mad that we didn't get fucking Treasure Planet 2 because I'm about to show you a picture of 
Jim's love interest. And I'm going to get points off because she's not straight. <laughs> and he's not straight. Oh, wow. It's, we missed out on this. It's just another person as androgynous and masculine as he is. Wow. Yeah, that's a that's a gay relationship. Yeah. That's a double bisexual relationship. Lizzie. I know. <laughs> I'm fucking robbed. And she's got red hair. Yeah. I have red hair. In case you can't hear my voice. Unless you can't hear Lizzie's red hair. She does have red hair. <laughs> I'm pissed. <laughs> and it was going to be directed by a woman. Anyway, fucking ass. It's okay. At least we can rest easy knowing it's not our fault because we didn't have cars or money back then. Us individuals in this room. Oh, I paid money to watch this movie in the You paid six-year-old money. My parents paid money. Exactly. But we did nothing. We did all we could. We did all we could. Yes. All right. So to gloss over the reception, like I said, it fucking failed at the box office. So this film was the most expensive hand-drawn animated film to date with a budget of $140 million and close to another $40 million in advertising. It grossed only $37 million in its initial release, though it did come closer to $109 million internationally. Still a deficit of, like, $70 million. And, like, there still isn't one, like, key factor into, like, why it failed. Because as a little case study, I compared it to Atlantis, the film that came out a year before from Disney that in a lot of ways mimics this film or parallels this film. And Treasure Planet got better reviews. Mm. Treasure Planet was also nominated for Best American Feature at the Oscars. Wow. It's had more production value. It had more marketing. I really don't know why it failed. I mean, I, I guess it's a combo of everything we've been talking about. I bet Atlantis didn't have a Goo Goo Dolls number. It did not. Hmm. Maybe the Goo Goo Dolls sunk it. <laughs> Too much Goo Goo Dolls. Yeah, that's what, the, that's what the critics said. Yeah. Treasure Planet did come out the same weekend as, like, Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, the second Harry Potter film, a James Bond movie, a Lord of the Rings movie. So some people say it's because it just came out at the wrong time. But even since then, like, no one, it never came back to get a cult following, not like Atlantis. Yeah, it's reminding me of Hocus Pocus, that episode where you talked about, like, it's mismarketing, also it's mishandling, and when it was distributed, like, they put it out in the middle of summer. It's a movie about Halloween. Right. You know, they released this on the same weekend as Harry Potter, which obviously kids are going to be more keen to see that. Mm -hmm. it, this this just seemed mishandled. It just seemed mishandled, and it just, like, never found its audience. I guess, like, I was its audience, and I found it, and, like, no one else stood next to me. I mean, if anyone listening to this really likes fucking planet treasure, planet treasure, <laughs> which is a bar on Bourbon Street in New Orleans, um, just let me know that I'm not crazy because I've asked every single one of my friends and no one has heard of this film or watched it. You're the only person I know. I'm like, was this movie only made for me? All $140, $140 million directed directly at me? You know what artists say? Like, if I could just change one person's day like that'll be enough disney probably has never said that they no. were like we want the money <laughs> well john and ron directors y'all did me a lot of good john Thanks. and ron let's go ron and john let's go ron and john john and ron john all and ron. day oh all right so we don't fucking we don't score we don't non -gays. score these so 
Bye. They're, they're second class citizens. Oh, <laughs> it's okay. How many points did it end up with on the gay barometer? Negative ten. Oh my god. So this movie's gay. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Lucy managed to swing the pendulum back into gayville. Yeah. Well, I expect nothing less on your birthday. Happy birthday, Lizzie. Thank you. Next year, I'm just going to have to do an hour of silence for my birthday because there's no other non-gay movies I like, apparently. Yeah. Look forward to that episode, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks for listening, and we'll see y'all out in the ether. And please remember, it's Treasure Planet. It's Treasure Planet. <laughs> it's definitely not that one. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode. We hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like to keep this content ad-free, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash subtextualpod. See you next week.